You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to episode 122 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we ended last week's show with the collapse of the hornet's nest. The blue-clad defenders of the hornet's nest literally held until they were surrounded and captured. That happened after Sherman and McClernand had fallen back on the Union right and after Stuart, MacArthur, and then Hurlbut had retreated on the opposite side of the hornet's nest. But in the Union center, Prentiss and W.H.L. Wallace didn't fall back, and so the Confederates were able to press forward to the right and left of the hornet's nest and surround the defenders. As the onrushing rebels encircled the hornet's nest and clamped shut the trap, W.H.L. Wallace was mortally wounded while trying to lead his men to safety, while Prentiss and about 2,200 men of the doomed 2nd and 6th Divisions were captured by the Confederates. As we mentioned last week, W.H.L. Wallace died four days after being wounded trying to lead his men out of the hornet's nest. But Benjamin Prentiss was captured and later exchanged. He lived until 1901. As the years passed and the hornet's nest became a household name, the idea that Prentice was the hero of the day at Shiloh would get more and more attention. Prentice himself did nothing to discourage people from thinking this. In fact, he actively promoted the idea that the defensive stand at the Hornet's Nest had saved Grant's army by giving the federal commander enough time to build his next line of defense. But did the stand in the Hornet's Nest really save the Union army that day at Shiloh? In our book recommendation for episode number 119, The Shiloh Campaign, edited by Stephen Woodworth, there's a chapter by Timothy B. Smith called Anatomy of an Icon, in which he investigates the persistent legend that the hornet's nest was the spot of the most violent and crucial fighting at Shiloh. And in his analysis of the action in the Union Center, Smith reaches the conclusion that, quote, there is quite a bit of evidence that argues against the idea that the hornet's nest was the most vicious, vocal, and important sector at Shiloh. End quote. By 4.30 that Sunday afternoon, when Sherman's and McClernand's troops to the right of the hornet's nest were withdrawing to Grant's final defensive line, and Hurlbut's division to the left of the hornet's nest had been pushed out of the peach orchard and then retreated to that famous last line, Prentice and Wallace could have pulled out then and also gone into the final line, but they didn't. Prentice and Wallace, and it seems especially Prentice, interpreted Grant's orders to hold at all hazards 
differently than Hurlbut, Sherman, and McClernand. Prentice and Wallace held the hornet's nest until they were encircled and trapped by the Confederates rushing around their flanks. The idea later took hold that the men of the 2nd and 6th Divisions were sacrificial lambs offered to the rebels so the rest of Grant's army could survive. But in his chapter on the hornet's nest in the Shiloh campaign, Smith argues pretty convincingly that, quote, troop positions, unit casualties, contemporary veteran testimony, placement of burials on the battlefield, and battle context all paint a different picture than that of the icon established through the years after the war. It hints that the hornet's nest was not the line that saved the day for Grant. End quote. Smith explains that by 3 p.m. that afternoon, Grant's famous final line of defense was already very strong and became that much stronger as unit after unit fell back from the forward lines and was added to it. What this means is that Grant didn't need Wallace and Prentice to hold out and sacrifice themselves in order to save his army. The stand by the units holding the hornet's nest did cause the Confederates to focus nearly their entire attention on that position late in the day, and almost certainly delayed the rebel attack on Grant's last line, but had Prentice and Wallace fallen back with the rest of the army, they would have gone into that last defensive line and made it that much stronger. At least 2,200 Federals eventually surrendered after their stand in the hornet's nest, and most of those would have instead been available to strengthen that last line. If Prentice and Wallace had fallen back by 4.30, the rebels may have been able to assault Grant's last defensive line by around 5 o'clock. But given the terrain and the strength of that final line, Smith argues that there's little reason to believe the Federals wouldn't have held that position just as easily at 5 as they actually did an hour later at 6 p.m. At any rate, we'll talk more about that last defensive line in just a moment, but we wanted to spend a bit of time here at the beginning of this episode looking at the question of whether or not the hornet's nest was the focal point of the fighting at Shiloh, since it later became one of the most famous spots on the battlefield. The last thing we'll mention, as far as trying to understand how the hornet's nest became so firmly fixed in the public's mind as the most important action at Shiloh, is that one of the Union soldiers who fought there on April 6, 1862, was a young man named David W. Reed, serving in the 12th Iowa. Reed was spared from capture only because he was wounded and left behind as his comrades surrendered and were led off as prisoners. Reed, though, did suffer from his wound through the long, rainy night that followed before the spot where he lay was overrun during the Union counterattack on Monday. Years later, Reed was the historian on the commission charged with establishing Shiloh National Military Park. Reed literally wrote the book on what was important at Shiloh. Actually, he wrote volumes about the battle, and in 1902, when his work, The Battle of Shiloh and the Organizations Engaged, came out, the hornet's nest, his fight, played the starring role in the fighting. Thanks largely to Reed's efforts and the way the National Park Service subsequently spun the tale of the battle, the hornet's nest became a household name and became firmly fixed in people's minds as the focal point of the battle, the pivotal action of the day that saved Grant's army. But Timothy B. Smith concludes his investigation of this legend 
by explaining that if you trace the origins of the story of the hornet's nest's importance at Shiloh, you find it's based almost exclusively on Reed's interpretation of the facts, not the facts themselves. And Reed's interpretation, given center stage by the National Park Service through the years, dominated the literature on Shiloh to such a degree that the hornet's nest became an icon. But Smith concludes by writing, quote, The defenders of the hornet's nest actually saw less fighting than their comrades in arms. They just did a better job of getting their story out, thus creating the icon that today is the hornet's nest at Shiloh. This is just a postscript to the previous section, but one other thing about the hornet's nest that we wanted to mention is the role of Ulysses S. Grant in the encirclement of the 2nd and 6th Divisions. We wondered about this, but really didn't find it addressed in any of our sources. But as Army commander, what role did Grant play in the debacle that unfolded with the defenders of the hornet's nest? In his memoirs, Grant wrote, quote, In one of the backward moves, on the 6th, the division commanded by General Prentiss did not fall back with the others. This left his flanks exposed and enabled the enemy to capture him with about 2,000 of his officers and men. End quote. Now, there was bad blood between Grant and Prentiss, so this may account for Grant's rather dismissive recounting of the episode in his memoirs. At any rate, Grant didn't accept any responsibility for Prentiss and Wallace being cut off after he had told them to hold at all hazards. But should Grant have accepted some responsibility for what happened to the defenders of the hornet's nest? We think so. Accounts of the battle tend to be rather vague about Grant's specific activities that afternoon. Most accounts mention him riding the lines and visiting his division commanders from time to time, and he ordered his chief of staff, Colonel Joseph D. Webster, to form that last defensive line. But specific details of Grant's management of the battle, as it unfolded on Sunday afternoon, seem a bit slim. On the Union right, Sherman took the initiative to order he and McClernand's battered divisions to fall back that afternoon. And over on the other side of the hornet's nest, the rout of Stuart and MacArthur, and then Hurlbut's withdrawal from the peach orchard and his retreat to the final defensive line, all happened in response to Confederate pressure. None of it appears to be a part of any orders that Grant issued or any plan that he might have imagined for an orderly withdrawal back to that last line. If Grant told Prentice to hold his position in the center at all hazards, and that was the last order that Prentice received from him, then Grant shouldn't have been surprised that Prentice did exactly that. It's our understanding that when an officer in the Civil War received such an order, he recognized that it meant the position he was defending was vitally important and that he was expected to hold that position, with no thought of retreat, literally until the last man. Really, if Grant expected Prentiss and Wallace to fall back to that last line of defense, especially after Sherman and McClernand had withdrawn and Hurlbut had retreated, then Grant should have dispatched staff officers to Prentiss and Wallace with orders for them to fall back to that last line. If Grant, however, just assumed that Prentiss and Wallace would fall back before it was too late, 
then the fault for what actually happened to the defenders of the hornet's nest lies with Grant. And we hate to say that, since we're no fans of Benjamin Prentice, but there you go, we call him like we see him, and to us, the fault is Grant's. Like we said, we really couldn't find this topic addressed in any of our sources, so this is all just our two cents worth, and if you guys have any thoughts on it, we'd love to hear from you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier that afternoon, several hours before the final collapse of the hornet's nest, back while Sherman, McClernand, Wallace, Prentice, and Hurlbut still held out, Ulysses S. Grant had told his chief of staff, Colonel Joseph D. Webster, to form all available units into a last-ditch def defensive line back near Pittsburgh Landing. Beginning around 2.30, Webster started to position the Army's battery of big siege guns so that they could fire along the wide, nearly level top of the last ridge before the landing, the ridge that carried the Corinth Road as it approached Pittsburgh Landing. The five big 24-pounder guns had been brought along for the anticipated siege of Corinth, but Webster pressed them into service here at Shiloh as anchor points for that final defensive line. If the rebels were going to have any chance of breaking through to the landing, they would probably have to approach along the Corinth Road, along the nearly level ground that spread a few hundred yards on either side of the road, and so it was there that Webster placed the siege guns. Along with the big 24-pounders, Webster also placed every field battery he could collect, perhaps 40 guns in all. As infantry support was added to back up the massed artillery, the famous last line of defense became that much more secure, and by 3 p.m. it was already very strong. By 4.30, by the time Hurlbut's retreat had carried him into the final line, and Sherman and McClernand began their withdrawals to the last line, that position was already formidable. Prentice and W.H.L. Wallace could have pulled out then from the hornet's nest and gone into the final line, but as you guys know, Prentice and Wallace didn't fall back 
at least not until it was too late. As we mentioned previously on the podcast, after his withdrawal from the peach orchard and subsequent retreat back toward the landing, Hurlbut managed to rally his division along Webster's gun line, providing infantry support for the massed artillery. Then, those few units and parts of units and individuals from the hapless 2nd and 6th Divisions who managed to escape the Confederate encirclement of the Hornet's Nest were added to the line. McClernand's and Sherman's divisions moved into position to the right of Webster's line of guns and its supporting infantry. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth writes that at this point, quote, the Army of the Tennessee now held a more compact and coherent position than it had yet done throughout that day. Its left flank was anchored on the river just above Pittsburgh Landing, facing south. The line ran west from the river along the ridge and then curved back to the north, where Sherman's division held the right flank, facing southwest and just covering the road toward which Grant had been looking all day in hopes of Lew Wallace's arrival. From end to end, this last possible Union line stretched about 2,500 yards and was held by perhaps 18,000 men. Of the five Union divisions that had fought that day, W.H.L. Wallace's 2nd Division and Prentice's 6th had all but disintegrated, though a few fragments of their troops still formed a part of the final battle line. The other three divisions, however, though badly depleted, were still intact in their organization and able to maneuver and fight. End quote. Grant's final line was bolstered by naval support, as out on the Tennessee River, the timberclads Tyler and Lexington also joined the battle. As early as 1.30 that afternoon, Lieutenant William Gwynn, commanding the Tyler, had sent an officer ashore to ask for orders. At that time, Hurlbut apparently told the naval officer where to fire, and more important, where not to fire, and after receiving this message, Gwen opened up with the Tyler's 8-inch and 32-pounder guns a bit before 3 o'clock. After throwing shells ashore for a while, at 4 p.m., Gwen attempted to contact Grant for further orders. Grant responded that Gwen should use his own judgment. The Lexington, which had been down at Crump's Landing, arrived at about this time, and together the two timberclads steamed up river about three-quarters of a mile and engaged several Confederate field batteries positioned near the riverbank. After silencing the rebel guns, the ships then steamed to a position opposite the steep ravine of Dill Branch, just south of the landing. The ravine, choked with brush and flooded hip-deep with backed-up river water, was like a notch in the line of bluffs along the river. As part of any assault on Grant's final line, the Confederates would have to cross the ravine and expose themselves to the fire of the timberclad's guns, since the ships were perfectly situated to fire up the ravine from their position on the river. While waiting for any such Confederates to appear and attempt to cross Dill Branch, the Tyler and Lexington occupied themselves by using the ravine's notch in the riverside bluffs to lob shells blindly up onto the portion of the battlefield now overrun by the enemy. At least some of the big shells landed amongst the ranks of Chalmers' brigade of rebel troops, inflicting a number of casualties. It 
It was taking time for the Confederates to prepare their attack on Grant's final position. As soon as the hornet's nest collapsed, Braxton Bragg began urging units to continue the assault, and Polk was also trying to push the southern troops forward. But it was difficult. The rebel brigades and regiments that had taken part in the encirclement of the hornet's nest had become badly scrambled as they strove to break the Union center. Untangling them and trying to launch a coordinated attack toward Pittsburgh Landing took time, but the Confederates were running out of time. Untangling the assortment of Confederate units that had participated in the final reduction of the hornet's nest took time, as did the rounding up and sending to the rear of the 2,000 or so Federal troops taken prisoner. Bragg and Polk and other Southern commanders were making every effort to prepare a coordinated attack on the landing, but it wasn't until about 6 p.m. and the sun was less than 20 minutes from setting when Chalmers and Jackson's brigades, the same Confederate units that had earlier overwhelmed Stuart's Federals, launched their attack toward the Union left. Chalmers and Jackson couldn't hope to break through to Pittsburgh Landing by themselves, but Bragg and other Confederate officers were working feverishly to bring up more troops and launch a larger assault before daylight faded. The sun would set that Sunday evening about 6.20, and twilight enough for normal combat operations would last about a half hour after that. So if the rebels could break the final Union line by, say, 6.45, they would stand a high chance of destroying Grant's army in the gathering darkness. On the other hand, if the final Union line could hold until 6.45, the darkness that by then would have settled over the battlefield around the landing would put an effective stop to normal combat operations. Thus, Bragg and the other Confederate leaders had about 30 minutes to launch an attack that, if successful, might still produce the decisive victory they'd been striving for all day. Next week, we'll talk about the final Confederate attempt to carry the day before nightfall, and the unexpected development that put a stop to that attempt. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Soldier's View, The Civil War Art of Keith Rocco. Yeah, we're um, kind of running out of Shiloh books, since this will be the 12th episode in this story arc on the campaign and battle, and while we do have one more Shiloh-specific recommendation, we're saving it for the second day of the battle. And so that means that now we're going to take the opportunity to recommend a few books to you guys that aren't Shiloh-specific, but that are still pretty cool and worthy of your consideration. And this book featuring Keith Rocco's Civil War art is both of those things. Uh, That is pretty cool and worthy of your consideration. Uh, Rocco's probably our favorite military artist, and this is our favorite book that collects some of his paintings. And it does feature a painting from the Battle of Shiloh. The book is divided into sections based on each year of the war. And in 1862, there's a painting of the 9th Illinois in action at Shiloh. So that's The Soldier's View, the Civil War Art of Keith Rocco. And you can find it and all of our other book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we close, we just wanted to take a minute to thank everyone who has left us some great five-star reviews on iTunes lately. 
Y'all have left some wonderful comments there about the podcast, and Rich and I really appreciate your kind words. And then a quick but sincere thank you to a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade, uh, Daryl and Angela. Uh, We appreciate your support. All right, and thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.